Today we're going to be speaking with Scott McDonald, who is the Chief Economist at Smith Research and Grading, and also is Senior Associate at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS, in the Americas Program. In part one of our conversation, Scott and I discussed the effects of U.S. bank de-risking on Caribbean banks. And in part two, we discussed the idea of the new Cold War between the U.S. and China and where the Caribbean fits in in that conversation. So usually when I get asked by U.S. policy analysts about what I think is the biggest Caribbean issue of the US, I would usually say bank de-risking. And that would catch them off guard a lot of times, I think, because they've never heard of the problem before. And that comes down to this issue where a lot of geopolitics or foreign policy commentators tend to not have a strong finance background. You know, that's very understandable, but it is what it is. Uh, Scott, you, however, are one of the few U.S. policy commentators on the Caribbean that tend to point out very strongly and very often this de-risking issue from the U.S. So to kind of dive into the conversation, could you first explain what de-risking is and then we could go from there? Sure. Be delighted to. Basically, de-risking is a situation under which regulators put uh, their bank's under a degree of pressure to de-risk, to get rid of risk that would be added to their balance sheets. And that's everything from who you make loans to, to correspondent banking relationships. The big issue for the Caribbean is the correspondent banking relationships. Um, what has happened was for a lot of U.S., Canadian, European banks that operated in the Caribbean, it became more expensive to do business there. Uh, you had to follow more rules and regulations. You were under pressure. Uh, there's also been the perception that the Caribbean is a scandal-prone region. You know, it's fun and sun and money laundering are the ways of life. And the reality is uh, very different from that. You know, yes, in the past there were particular situations in countries where it was an issue. However, uh, the Caribbean has done a lot of work to clean up the money laundering issue. So, you know, the, what had happened over the last, I'd say, four to five years, as the pressures mounted, U.S., Canadian, European banks have withdrawn from the Caribbean. And what has happened has been that there's a gap. And where this comes in, importantly, is business uh, that businesses in the Caribbean that do business, import and export, you need a bank because you need a correspondent bank to do the transactions. It comes in in terms of remittances. Uh, Guyana has a huge diaspora in the United States, and a lot of remittances went back. Same thing with the Dominican Republic. Uh, Jamaica is another one. And let's say you're growing up in Trinidad, and your daughter is going to go off to McGill University, um, you need a correspondent bank or you need a bank in Trinidad that has a correspondent bank in Canada. But as these relationships got severed, it definitely had an impact. It hindered business. It hindered trade. It hindered investment between North America and the Caribbean. 
and it, it had a damaging impact on a lot of businesses. And if, I think two or three countries actually ended up with no banks that fit to have that correspondent banking relationship. So it, it definitely was a huge impact on the region, and it does tend to fly under foreign policy uh, policy views and discussions. Uh, it's more of a financial issue, so it gets put off to the side. And what do you think is the main reasons for the excessive de-risking of Caribbean banks by U.S. banks? Well, I, I think a lot of it was perceptual. I think historically you did have money laundering going on in the Bahamas and the Caymans and the BVIs. Um, but one of the big issues came up was the Panama Papers, which revealed a network in Panama and the British Virgin Islands. Um, there was much more of a focus on it. And as people looked at things like the papers on the Panama Papers, uh, it brought attention back to the region. Even though, let's say, countries like Barbados or Jamaica really, you know, they're not known for being financial centers per se or financial centers in the same level as London or New York, but they did get tagged with this. And the European Union also has gone through a number of regulatory cleanups and upgrades, which has tightened regulation. I, but so I think, you know, it's an easier place to go do business in terms of uh, the regulatory side and de-risking. But I'd like to point out that some of the biggest money laundering scandals have taken place in Europe over the last couple of years. Uh, you had uh, Swedbank, which was in 20, is 2017, sorry, 2018, 2019, Swedbank got caught out for laundering money through its Estonian subsidiary of about $22 billion. The money originally, part of it came out of Moldova and probably came from Russian and Kazakhstan, uh, I want to say crime families or criminal organizations or transnational criminal organizations, but they got caught. They ended up with a $386 million fine 2020. Dansk Bank, which is in Denmark, they also got caught out in Estonia and Latvia. They had to pay a substantial fine as well. So, and German real estate markets are also known for being a great place to launder money. So Europe tightened a lot of the regulations. Um, the issue is for the Caribbean, they're smaller countries, and probably there is a subconscious thinking that goes on that it's easier to, to impose these rules and regulations on smaller countries. So I think there's been a number of factors that have uh, colluded to put the Caribbean in a much more tighter type of regulatory network globally. Right. And then, you know, the big implication here is, so for example, if Barbados cannot pay for goods in the U.S., then they have to find some other pathway to pay for goods. But then if the dollar market is closed off, then obviously China becomes a much more um, palatable answer to that problem. And one of the things that kind of pushes that argument a bit further that I don't think people know is Suriname already has a bilateral swap arrangement with the PBOC for, I think, a billion uh, RMB. 
as so in in Suriname, you can get RMB via the Surinamese domestic currency, and also there's a a branch of a Chinese bank also in Suriname that issues the Union Pay cards. So again, Surinamese technically have access to that, and that's only as you know, it's pretty recent from 2014, I believe. So that kind of thing can spread to other Caribbean countries quite fast, and you can see how easily it could become that the Caribbean payments market would not completely, but could be substantially tilted towards Chinese uh, Chinese clearing systems instead of the U.S. Yeah, uh, that's, it's a very good point. I mean, the thing is, if the U.S., Canada, Europe makes it more difficult to do business, you still need to do business if you're in the Caribbean. So what it, it has done is to push other options. Uh, China has been one option, but Russian banks are another, Turkish banks as well. Uh, however, one of the one of the downside issues is it probably costs more to deal with these banks. And then the issue is, can Caribbean businesses and Caribbean banks have proper due diligence with these other banks? Uh, it does also, though, as you're alluding to, give more economic influence to a country like China. China does play a significant role in Suriname. Uh, I wouldn't say they're you know busy calling the shots or totally affecting policy, but the I think the second largest uh, debtor, or creditor rather, to Suriname is China. I would add that in terms of Caribbean economic security, you know, thinking about it from the Caribbean perspective, it would still make sense to have a diversified payments landscape for, you know, its national payments and not solely rely upon the U.S. dollar, U.S. banks and U.S. dollar market in general. So in the Caribbean, a lot of the goods are from China, but in the normal trade data, it would say the U.S. by far, by far is the biggest traded partner. Some, a lot of that is just, you know, I say phantom trade because the U.S. is where we have to go through to get the goods from China. You can imagine a world, a possible world, where we could just pay directly to Chinese suppliers and have the goods shipped directly to China, uh, dirty Caribbean, sorry, without going through the U.S. And in that case, it is better for Caribbean economic security to have good access to Chinese clearing and Chinese payment and Chinese settlement networks. Well, it's one option that sits there. Diversification is always a good idea. The question is, if the tensions between the U.S. and China intensify, the amount of Chinese influence in particular countries becomes more of an issue. And, you know, what we saw under the Trump administration was the push towards a, you're either with us or you're with them. I won't say against us, but it was more, you know, you're either working with the U.S. or you're not working with the U.S., and that is where this gets to be dicier because Chinese banks don't have the same range and services that U.S. and Canadian banks offer, European banks offer. So it's um, there's a lot to be said about diversification, but the question is how much do you want to be dependent on a lot of other financial institutions? I mean, the U.S. was not the only bank presence in Suriname. Uh, traditionally, we've had Dutch banks that have also been engaged. 
but they cut down a lot when Bouterseh was in office. Do you think that the I know the Caribbean governments, the Caribbean central bankers, the Caribbean economists, the, even the multilateral um, institutions, the Caribbean CDB and the IADB and so on, they've been trying to lobby the U.S. government to reduce, I guess, some of the regulations that they impose on the on the U.S. banks so as to reduce the burden that the Caribbean banks have. But see, that seems to be one of those like really uphill battles because. The reason why the Caribbean banks are, are banks in the Caribbean are disadvantaged is because of the banks in the U.S. are being have this very high regulation, but there's you know it's big domestic pressure in the U.S. to keep banks as this extra regulation, not really caring about what the actual carry on effect is in the Caribbean. So I mean, do you think it's actually some willingness to in the U.S. to adjust these you know stringent things that Dodd Frank Dodd Frank had caused, or for example the Operation choke point from the FDIC in the U.S. Do you think rolling back those things is actually in the cards soon? I, I think what you're going to see is that as the Caribbean rises as a policy issue to the Biden administration, they're going to have to reassess all U.S. policies for the region. Uh, the sad fact is that unless something is going on in the region, uh, the Caribbean tends to fade back as an issue. Uh, you know, I'd say the subconscious view is the Caribbean's a safe area. Uh, lots of tourists go there. Uh, the governments are democratic in general, with a few exceptions, and we're not really going to worry about it. Uh, Haiti and Cuba have brought back a return focus on the Caribbean. Uh, that doesn't necessarily help the English-speaking Caribbean, but the fact that you have, like, um, the Antiguan ambassador in Washington, uh, Sir Ronald Sanders, he's a very good advocate for the Caribbean, for CARICOM countries. Um, there was a meeting arranged in November of 2019 with uh, Maxime Waters, who's the chair of the House Banking Committee, along with Gaston Brown, the Prime Minister of St. Lucia, and part of this was in uh, and the large banks. And part of it was let's let's flesh out, let's make it clearer as to what the rules and regulations are in terms of de-risking. And part of the process in the states, and you're 100 percent correct that in the U.S., the attention, especially along the progressive lines of the Democratic Party, is. Banks are evil. They have to be kept on a tight leash. Therefore, we can't do any of these things. But that leaves out the whole discussion of what happens in the Caribbean. Um, it, it doesn't show up on, on progressive radar screens. So the issue, I think, going forward is going to be, um, I think the banks will probably have to work closer with the regulators. There will be some pressure from the administration, Biden administration, to loosen some of the, not so much loosen the regulations, but to provide a little more of uh, flexibility. Uh, and certainly there have been some of the banks that understand it. I think Bank of America has talked about uh, maybe having a bigger presence. So you may see a little bit of a return to most the, some of the banks in the region. Another topic you've been writing a lot about recently is the idea of a new Cold War between the U.S. and China. And in your case, you have the Caribbean as a center point of that argument. So 
let's go into it. What do you see is the new Cold War between the U.S. and China? Well, I think the the issue has gradually asserted itself where the global international political economy ends up being the U.S. and China as the main rivals. Uh, anytime I think you have a multipolar hegemonic system, eventually one of the one of those powers wants to be on top. They want to dominate. Um, and I think in terms of the U.S. versus the Soviet Union, there was a very strong ideological dimension to that. But with the U.S. and China, China does not want to destroy the global economy per se. But China wants to be calling the shots. And this is where I think you begin to head into the area of a new Cold War, that you're slowly beginning to see a us versus them mentality. And it's not just in the U.S. I mean, the Trump administration really had no qualms about using Cold War-like terminology. You know, the troika of tyranny, um, you know, China's debt trap, all these things. But on China's side, you have the wolf warrior diplomacy. Uh, You have what's going on in Australia. Australia raised questions as to the investigation into Wuhan and COVID. Australia also investigated uh, Chinese influence in media in Australia. The Chinese response is to say, fine, you're going to do that. We're going to retaliate. And how do we do that? As your number one trade uh, partner, we're going to put your stuff and let it sit in the ports outside of our ports and let it rot. And how do you how do you like that, Australia? So I what I and this is not happening overnight, uh, but it's it has a gradual move in that direction. I think it was Henry Kissinger said that we're in the foothills of a new Cold War. And I think that's accurate for where we are now. But the risk here is that we gradually slide in that direction. And you can see where the construct is for two camps. Um, you know, the G7 coming up with the Build a Better World infrastructure program that China's not in that, neither is Russia. Um, the America Crece program, America Growth Initiative, um, that is for friends in Latin America and the Caribbean. The um, other aspect in the South Pacific, um, you have um, the Quad, which is India, Japan, the U.S., and um, Australia. And that is kind of a military, I won't say an alliance, but it's being pushed in that direction. The other side of that coin is with China. China uh, has two, I would say, two countries it kind of works with. And I say kind of, it's not a formal alliance, but there's allied interest at this stage, and that's Russia and Iran. Um, and, you know, Russia, Iran, China all have long traditions of being great powers. And the willingness to coordinate certain policies and viewpoints and votes is being played out. And the more, and the U.S. has economic embargoes on people in all three of those governments. So, you know, you you take a look at the structure, where we're heading, um, I do see that we're heading towards a new Cold War. 
whether or not we reach that point is a different issue. But I think if you go back and you look at Chinese history, uh, China long time, for a long time under dynastic China was the center of the universe. The world rotated around China from the Chinese perception of their history. Uh, the rest of the world were barbarians. It was only in the 19th and 20th century that things ended up with the world upside down for China. And now you have uh, China's back. You know, it's like the opposite of uh, Mr. Trump's America first is China first. And that is what gives momentum to two groups of countries kind of sparring over issues. So I know you, you, you kind of bring this close to home by pointing out you know, Venezuela, perhaps Cuba as well. Uh, does being, viewing it from the Caribbean add any clarity or complication to the idea that there's a potential new Cold War afoot? Well, it's interesting in talking to people in the Caribbean, I would say in the English speaking Caribbean, there has been a, cha- a gradual change of perception. I mean, China really doesn't appear as a partner, if you want, until about, uh, let's say, 2010, 2011, 2012. There were discussions, some earlier investment, but it, it doesn't make its presence felt. In the 2010s, it's definitely felt. And China's, China came, one as a partner for Caribbean countries, um, you know, the, the, the smiley face side of the relationship is we're here to build infrastructure. We're bringing construction crews, not soldiers. Uh, we're offering you educational exchanges, and uh, we have Confucian institutions in most of the Caribbean. So, over to, you know, the initial round was wow, the West is not lending us money. The U.S. interest has faded since the Cold War. It's not entirely gone. But guess what? China's interested. Uh, China's willing to put ambassadors on all the island countries. The U.S., if you're in the Eastern Caribbean, you have to go to Barbados. Mm-hmm. You know, it's little things like that. So it's soft diplomacy, economic statecraft, which has allowed China to get a role in the region. Um, as we go a little further along, that dynamic has changed where people are a little more cautious of China and what China's bringing to the table. <clears throat> I think the, uh, and, and part of that comes from what's gone on with countries like Pakistan, Sri Lanka, where China has had a lot of clout in terms of their debt, and it has not necessarily meant a uh, well-conceived sort of Dr. Evil-like debt trap plan, but it has meant that uh, China has more leverage in various countries. And the ultimate issue from a geostrategic military view, if you have access to a port and you get into a war, you probably can use that. Uh, that's one of the big concerns about the Panama Canal with uh, Hutchinson Wampoa having both ends of the Panama Canal under operations. Um, the Wolf warrior side, though, in general, has not been shown in the Caribbean. And like I said, the viewpoint is partnership. However, 
the more China becomes involved in Caribbean affairs, the more potential there is to bump up against Chinese core issues. And you saw this last year in Guyana, or it was this year, in Guyana with Taiwan. China wants to knock Taiwan out of the box so they have no diplomatic relationships anywhere on the planet. Um, the Caribbean and Central America are two of the last repositories for those countries. Taiwan has a very limited formal diplomatic structure with countries. However, it does have trade offices. And the Guyanese government decided that they would allow the opening of a trade office for Taiwan in Guyana. Now, Guyana had relationships with the People's Republic of China since 1972. It's long been considered a friendly country. And China responded very viscerally uh, and basically uh, told Guyana, uh, what are you doing? You're violating our one China policy. And if you don't do something about it, you're going to feel the impact. So Guyana got slapped down by China in a very rude and very public fashion. And this is one of the issues, I think, going forward that may appear more if Caribbean countries that are receiving aid and have a large relationship with China, this could happen. Um, what happened in Hong Kong, you had a vote at the United Nations. The countries that got a fair amount of aid with China voted for China's national security law that other people did not have a say in Hong Kong or democracy. I think it was Antigua and Barbuda, maybe uh, Dominica, but countries that did. Countries that did not have a relationship with China, like Belize, they voted against the resolution and they voted for it to be a human rights violation. So it's the core, it's when you bump up against the core interest where I think Caribbean countries are going to get caught in the middle. And I would say three years ago, I didn't think this was as much of an issue, but it is creeping into the awareness of a new global geography. That last point, uh, perhaps more of a that last meta point, is where I have some concern in the, in the argument. Because Caribbean countries have historically been quite heterogeneous in how they approach many international foreign policy issues. Uh, for example, Cuba. Cuba is almost like a thorn in the U.S.'s side. By the same time, the Caribbean has had very good relations with Cuba. I mean, since, since it became a, a Castro-led regime uh, to this day. And even like, for example, Venezuela. Caribbean is split in very odd ways when it comes to the Maduro-Guaido recognition. And even Israel and Palestine in Caribbean has various um, degrees of views on that issue as well. So I don't think it's a matter of some influence campaign or not influence campaign that would tilt the Caribbean different countries and how they perceive issues in um, in China, Hong Kong, Taiwan. But even on Taiwan, it's this larger macro narrative on Taiwan and Caribbean is very tricky because 
I don't think, for example, Taiwan will have any allies in the Caribbean in 20 years, not because of any failing of Taiwan's diplomacy or any advance of PRC diplomacy. Just a matter of Caribbean countries, they will eventually need to have more trade groupings with PRC. The same way how the US and the UK and the EU all recognize PRC over Taiwan, but at the same time try to promote Taiwan as a democratic ally. The Caribbean will do the same thing. We will trade more with PRC, recognize PRC, but at the same time perhaps promote Taiwan as a democratic ally. Some will continue to, to do that. So I think that the idea of, I think if, when the Caribbean goes forward with that kind of, um, path it is not because of influence from China, it's because the Caribbean has always been very heterogeneous and pragmatic in how it approaches global issues. I think there's, Two, two, dimension, two issues which are worth mentioning with this. One is, yeah, there is a logic to being trading with China. China is the second largest economy in the world. Uh, it needs markets. It wants uh, natural resources. And as China becomes more affluent, its people want to go on vacation. And the Caribbean certainly can offer that. The second aspect is goes back to my earlier point, and that's the asymmetrical relationships between China and the U.S. on one side and the Caribbean being in the middle of that relationship. If the U.S. and China end up colliding in the South uh, China Sea, or if China invades Taiwan, the U.S.-Chinese relationship is going to be much more intensified. It's going to be hostile. And it goes into a Cold War getting hot scenario. And under those circumstances, I think whoever's in Washington, and, and Biden is just as aggressive towards China as Trump was, if that happens, you are in a new Cold War, and I think the U.S. and China will call out Caribbean governments uh, maybe not to formally join an alliance, but they will put a lot more pressure on them, and they will also use economic statecraft to back their policies in a much more blatant fashion than what's occurring now. So I, I think that's that you can't, and this is one of the points in my book, is you can't look at the Caribbean in isolation. The, you know, I could say we could have the same argument about Europe with China and Russia on one side and the U.S. on the other, or Africa, uh, the jockeying for position. So, you know, it's, um, it is an asymmetrical relationship, and if U.S.-Chinese relations end up being more of a great rivalry, great power rivalry, then that relationship may smooth out a bit and the pressure on the Caribbean, this becomes, I won't say does not become a non-issue, but it becomes less pertinent, less of a concern, and it doesn't manifest itself in blatant power politics. Hmm. I can see that logic for sure. You know, one of the things that I get annoyed by, by uh, some policy comment, Haters from the U.S. when they think about the Caribbean or they write about the Caribbean, there is this, I guess, implicit assumption that 
like the end of history has reached the Caribbean, where we know where things are settled, is everybody's kind of settled into what they do and to do with the US. But, you know, that's not really ever been true in the Caribbean. Yeah. It's always been quite, um, again, as I, as I mentioned earlier, pragmatic in how it treats global issues. And the history of the Caribbean, I'm not sure where the assumption comes from that it is completely settled. So I, I can take the logic of needing to have that more assurity in what the Caribbean thinks about America and the U.S. in a hostile situation. America or China in a hostile situation. Yeah, no, I mean, I'll, I'll give you another example. The end of history is very pertinent, and it's not just the Caribbean. Um, one of the things I've looked at is Europe's relationship with the Caribbean. And one of the big issues, while the Netherlands, Spain, in the United Kingdom, and France are all interested in the Caribbean, the Germans really are not that interested. But the Germans are the locomotive that drives the European economy. They have a lot of clout. And the view in Germany, especially amongst younger generations, is we've reached the end of history. And we don't have to worry about defense. We don't have to worry about geopolitics. And the view for a lot of people is Germany should be a giant Switzerland and a trading country with everybody. And in the Caribbean, I think there is a bit of this thought process where we're a, a big safe zone. It's maybe where lots of little Switzerland's or Luxembourg, and we're comfortable with that. And we want to trade with everybody. And we don't want to think about geopolitics. But with Venezuela, with Cuba, with Haiti, geopolitics are back on the menu. And this is something which um, is going to be resisted. People don't want to address the issue. And I think you're going to see some very fierce debates over it. And like I said, if we find that the asymmetrical relationships of U.S.-Chinese relations deteriorate, it will ripple into the Caribbean. And the Caribbean will be caught in a juggling act. Yeah, this part I, I could agree with. Um, and I think this is probably one of the things I, I would like more discussion on because it's not going to be the case where the Caribbean can just say, okay, guys, you do it up there. We'll just stay here and buy some, you know, buy the popcorn and watch the watch as, as it goes by. That just can't work. And, uh, the funny thing is that the Caribbean knows this firsthand. The, the Russia, the USSR, um, the US actual Cold War played out quite substantially in the Caribbean. You had where, one of the worst crises in the Cold War took place in Cuba. Exactly. So we should be last region that has a, a, an assumption this actually be completely neutral across the board. So it, yeah, it definitely is the case where you have to take it a bit more seriously in because of increased tension. But uh, I, I am very much looking forward to see how the U.S. policy, not response, but policy deployment in the Caribbean will change over the next three years, given that the Caribbean has to be persuaded to be more on the U.S. side in a, in a case of uh, enhanced hostility. And for sure, China is doing a lot more in the Caribbean now compared to the U.S. Well, it, it's economic statecraft. Mm -hmm. Um China has been willing to play, or it's been accused of dollar diplomacy, but if somebody shows up 
and offers to build you a cricket stadium, offers to rebuild the presidential home, uh, is willing to work with you on developing roads, gives you low interest rates. Uh, yes, maybe they claim some land that if you have problems making the payments, but they're looking for collateral. That's kind of a business deal. Mm-hmm. Um, you're going to pay attention. And I think the Caribbean being a group of small states has to play its cards very carefully. Um, you know, if you look at an economy like St. Vincent, you know, it's tourism and cassava. Uh, <laughs> you know, those are the, t- well, you know, you laughing, but St. Vincent is the world's largest producer of cassava. Mm-hmm. Um, At Grenada, the second largest producer of nutmeg, I believe. Yes, nutmeg, yes. Mm-hmm. I think they contend with, uh, was it Madagascar and... Uh, and Indonesia. I- Indonesia, yeah. But anyway, we digress. <laughs> but, my, <laughs> but my point is, Caribbean countries have to play with the resources that they have. And one of those resources is geography. And you use it like you're at a card game very carefully. And I think so far that's what you've seen. Um, And also the environment, although during the Trump administration became much more Cold War-like, it's still – there were no military threats. There was nothing – Beyond that, uh, and I think that makes a huge difference. But like I said, the, the risk here is we sleepwalk into a new Cold War, and then we find ourselves one day where, especially in the Caribbean, we have to wake up to the fact that, hey, this is an issue. The We're back to geopolitics. And see, in my thinking, we're already back into the geopolitical world, uh, the, the world of, uh, you know, the end of history to me has ended, but most people don't want to give that up because it's a nice world. It's a nicer mm-hmm. world than having to deal with, oh God, now I have to pick somebody's side to be on. You know, and we've, but we've already seen this process start in Asia. You know, Vietnam is not friendly with China. Vietnam is ending up, ironically, being closer to the U.S. Um, and like I said, you have the Quad and uh, even countries like Malaysia, Thailand, they definitely lean in the direction towards the U.S. Mm-hmm. And they see China uh, as a partner, but they're also afraid of China's potential to be a bigger bully. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the rest of the world has not seen that type of China yet. But if China really wants to play for those stakes, then it cannot always live in the sort of camouflage of living in a multipolar world. China says, you know, we don't want to interfere with other countries, but China's own model, which is a, what I call a market Leninist system, market economics, although with a huge state dose and a Leninistic political system, Chinese are very proud of the way they handle COVID. Um, because we were able to really enforce the laws to keep people in a lockdown. We were able to send drones out to follow people and ask them what they were doing on the street. Um, China's very proud of that. And there is kind of the export of the China model being a much better model than the West, that the West really fell down in terms of dealing with COVID 
And before that, the West fell down in 2008 and 2009 with the financial crisis. Well, we, China, are not going to end up having those types of crises. Um, we have a better model to offer people if you want it. Um, when we come to your country, though, you have to decide how you want to respond to us. But we do prefer autocratic governments because it cuts through a lot of the red tape. It's a faster way. The the, the issue of China exporting a model, you know, it comes up all the time. I don't think that is a big concern. But again, the, the meta point is worth considering. Because I hear a lot of people in the US, you know, and Europe and so on, discuss the potential of democratic backsliding, as the term is phrased. But in the Caribbean, there are some blatant examples of non-democratic countries, you know, like, like Cuba. And there are some very much explicit ones like Haiti. But if you look at the other Caribbean countries that are very often not, very often considered to be democratic, they aren't really that democratic. For example, in St. Louis, in St. Vincent, sorry, you have the prime minister. He's serving now, I think, 21 years in power. His autobiography is called The Making of the Comrade. He is a blatant Castro regime supporter. And yet, for example, because um, St. Vincent is a Taiwan ally, the U.S. always praises him for his democratic values and supporting democratic allies, Taiwan, and so on. It's, it's, you know, extremely ironic. And then you would say, well, he wins elections, therefore he's, he's well loved. I mean, that's, is somewhat true. But when you have first past the post election systems, it's not very easy to change, um, to change governments. And in Barbados, for example, the Prime Minister of Barbados, um, she controls all the seats in Parliament. The party won all the seats. But because of that, she then changes laws quite easily. Actually, this year, the entire constitution is being changed and there's no outside comments actually being able to have input on the constitutional change. A lot of legal scholars in, in Barbados are making that to be a problem. And she appoints the senators. Actually, someone from her own party went over and formed the opposition party. So she kind of also kind of controls that too. She appoints all the, the, the judges in the country. And there's no real judicial review in Barbados or the Caribbean countries. And she appoints the governor general. So, you know, when you take a step back and, you know, you, go beyond the words and look at what's happening. It's very hard to say the Caribbean is very democratic. And in reality, it's very much more along the lines of, you know, more authoritarian in very real ways. So while I'm, while I'm not saying um, yes or no towards democracy, I'm saying that you have to be much more nuanced in how you think about it. And just to say anything in democratic backsliding kind of, betrays reality in very strong, strong senses. So, you know, in reality, why do we think the Caribbean is an extremely democratic place? Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's a good question. I mean, I think the issue, you're talking about governance and electoral politics. Um, the Caribbean is more democratic than a lot of other parts of the world. That's I'd, I'd start off by saying. Secondly, the things you're talking about are governance issues. Um, 
when I wrote my doctoral dissertation on Trinidad and Tobago, uh, Trinidad's prime minister was Eric Williams, and then it was, um, oh God, I can't remember his name right now, but Eric Williams was a bit of an autocrat. He, it was very tempting to be more authoritarian. And the fact that he, Chambers, he passed power onto Chambers, and then he, the further along Trinidad went, you did have competitive elections, and you did have changes in government. And it depends what benchmarks you want to use to say if the Caribbean's democratic or not. I, you know, the way, like I said, the Caribbean is much more democratic than a lot of other places, but there are issues. Uh, it's not just the cassava country that has this issue of longevity of a prime minister, but you look at uh, Dominica. Uh, Roosevelt Skerritt's been in office for quite a long period. Uh, and you find other cases as well. And if you take the entirety of the Caribbean, including the Hispanic Caribbean, uh, Cuba, I mean, since 1959, it's been under the Fidelistas, but even before then under Batista, uh, Cuban democracy just struggled. You had dictatorships. And certainly in the Dominican Republic, you had uh, Rafael Leonidas Trujillo uh, from 1930 to 1965, I think, or no, 61. And, you know, the only way you got rid of Trujillo was assassination. Uh, in Haiti, you had the Duvaliers. And so there, there is a non-democratic autocratic tradition in the region as well. But I think there's more of an effort to have... The, the easiest thing to focus on is to have an election. The most difficult thing is to make sure you have an election that means something. And that means you have to have freedom of press, rule of law, any other number of factors that go into good governability. And in that regard, yeah, the, the Caribbean has those challenges. The English-speaking Caribbean does. But you could say the same about the United States. Okay? Or, or look at the U.K., with Brexit, and you had three different prime ministers until you settled on Boris Johnson. You know, he was the third one, but you had Theresa May and then Cameron. And then you had a period of time where Parliament was totally deadlocked and unable to do anything. So, yeah, uh, what are your benchmarks and how do you want to go with that? Um, it's always easier to think that if you have a dictator, that guy or woman can get everything done that you need. But um, I think the Democrat, I, I think the Caribbean is lucky on one hand to have the type of democracies it has. But like in the U.S., there is room for improvement, and there are issues which there is an authoritarian temptation, especially with longevity of power. Yeah, this is definitely one of those topics that could be debated for a, for a long time, too. <laughs> you have a long chat on this. <laughs> and on that note, uh, thank you so much, Scott, for having this conversation today. I think we should definitely do a part two where we discuss in more detail the challenges of democracy in the Caribbean. Thanks for having me. Now up on stage with granny say
thing yes, me all diggy soon get the higher ring like hello brother. You say I had to shot ya. Saw your post a spectacular photo. Keep it burning, yes, that's the motto. If me the butter pass through your shot to get all in a life, man. Me have to thank God for the journey.